All right, well, this morning we're going to go ahead and get back on our, our series on the book of Romans. And, and I've entitled this one, May It Never Be, because in this chapter, Paul tends to take some of his time and basically puts forth an argument that somebody's been saying or that someone could say and just shoots it down. And he always says, well, should we say this? May it never be. He's kind of heading them off of the past with what people will say and, and actually what people have said about him as well. Praise God. Let me get my notes open here. So if you remember, in chapter 4, we were looking at uh, Paul showing that righteousness was by faith was actually a completely scriptural idea. And he went back into Genesis and showed with Abraham that righteousness was credited to Abraham by faith and not by what he accomplished and not by the law. Because as we said, the law didn't come for years and years after Abraham. Then in chapter 5, we looked at how he demonstrated that just like the act of one man, um, Adam, we all became sinners, that by the act of one man, Jesus Christ, we would uh, be made righteousness. And this righteousness is a gift, and it's not earned. It's not something that we do. And finally, if you remember, it says that we learned that we are no longer under the law. The law has been done away with, but we are now under grace. And that's where we left off. So let's go ahead and uh, dive right into it this morning. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? If you remember in verses, the last few verses of chapter 5, Paul says in, uh, in 5 verse 20, it says, The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So obviously the first argument somebody can make is that, well, if sin came, that, it would, that transgression would increase, then obviously the more sin there is, the more grace there is. The, you know, we're going to help God out by, by, by being bad. You know, if we do a bunch of sin and we do all these kinds of dumb stuff, even after we've been saved, then obviously God's work in our life, that grace is going to be so much more powerful because look at how much more it's doing in our lives. So he says, what are we to say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? He says, may it never be. Resounding, no. What are you guys thinking? See, the truth is that, that we have died to sin. That we, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We have actually died to sin. In 1 Peter 2.24, says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You know, for us to have an impact on somebody, they have to be alive, right? I mean, you're not going to be talking somebody that's cold on a slab in the autopsy room. You're not going to be talking him into uh, going home and doing his dishes. You're not going to be talking him into supporting the Republican Party or the Democrat Party. I mean, he's dead, right? We have, once, once they're dead, they're, we have no more influence on them. None whatsoever. In the same, verse, the same, the same, uh, uh, the same way, vice versa, that if we're dead, stuff can't have an influence on us. And if an alcoholic dies, and if an alcoholic were to pass away, I mean, you know that he's not tempted by alcohol anymore. He is, uh, you know, the, the smell of alcohol is not going to get to him. He's not going to respond to the smell of alcohol. If there's a, a bottle, someone places a bottle in his hand, you're not going to lean over and see the dead guy tipping it back, right? There's no confusion there. 
He can't smell it. He can't taste it. And matter of fact, the, the chemical reactions that happen in your brain that make you desire alcohol if you're addicted to it, that's just not happening anymore. The brain's not working. You know, they, they can put instruments on somebody that's dead and, and there's no more electrical impulses firing. There's nothing going on. Alcohol no longer has power over the dead man. So if we're dead to it, if we have died to sin, how would we still live in it? And this is the question Paul's asking. May it never be, we're not going to continue to sin so grace can increase because if we're dead to it, how can we live in it? And he's making the point, it would be just like the dead man, if he's dead to it, how is he going to start drinking it? And the same thing for us, if we're dead to sin, we're actually, we actually died, as far as sin's concerned, we're dead to it. It has no influence on us. It can no longer, it can no longer uh, uh, you know, pull at your, at your life. So the question is, we're all asking is, well, wait a minute, I'm still tempted by sin sometimes. Why is that if I'm dead to it? But it's because we don't have a true revelation. Because this, this unlike the guy that's dead on the table, the, the slab who physically died, we die by faith in Jesus Christ, that we are baptized into his death. This word baptized here can be used in a couple of ways in the Bible. The first way is to be fully submerged, to be fully whelmed. It's actually, oh, I was literally translated to be whelmed. And what that means is all the way under the water. So that's why when we do baptisms, we don't sprinkle a little water on a baby's forehead, or we don't, you know, just get them a little bit wet. Because the Bible says when you baptize somebody, you put them under the water and you bring them back up. Because what that is, is it's actually a representation of us dying with Christ. We are died, and when we were put under water, that's us being buried with Christ, like he was buried into the tomb. And when we're pulled out of the water, then that's our resurrection with him. And how many knows when somebody dies, you don't just throw a spoonful of dirt at their face. You put them in the ground and you bury them, right? But the other way that it can be used is figuratively as well. It can also be mean to, to be used to be identified with. So an example of how the Bible uses baptism to mean identified with is in 1 Corinthians 10.2, and it says, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And that was, uh, we're talking about baptism into Moses. Obviously, we're not talking about physical baptism in that instance. It's saying they were identified with Moses. They were with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So for all, by one spirit we were baptized. By one spirit that lives inside of us, we were identified into one body. We are joined together with, if you will, with Jesus Christ. That's the baptism that it's talking about here. If we've been baptized into Christ, if we've been identified or joined together with Christ, then we have been joined together or identified with him in his death as well. But this is by faith. Like I said, not like the, not like the dead guy on the table who has no choice. He, there, there's no response in him. We have to have a revelation by faith that we are dead to sin. And it's at that time that we can finally begin to stand against those temptations that come into our life, that we can stand against those, those things that try to pull us down. You know, when you, when you get those temptations, is, does, you do very well to remind yourself that I'm dead to sin and I'm alive in Christ and you have no more power over me. Amen. But the main thing to take away from it is, it's this statement right here. How shall we who died in sin still live in it? It's a question we have to ask ourselves because it should be an impossibility. It is impossible for somebody dead to live in something that is dead too. Amen? So keep that in mind as, you, as these things come to your life. Remind yourself that it's impossible for me to live in that because I am dead to it. 
Then in Romans 6, 4-7, through 7, it says, Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin may be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Who do you bury? Dead people, right? I mean, the only time you see a, a live person buried is in a movie because it makes a good plot. But the truth is that we, we bury dead people. So if we've been buried with him, then we have died with him. Our old man is dead with him. And Paul goes on to say that if we are united with him in death, like we just looked at in the last verse, and he continues to, to uh, hit it right here, it says if we, are, if we are united with him in death, then surely we're united with him in life. See, the reason is, is that not only have we died to sin, but we have his life inside of us. We're united with us in his life, in his new life that is living with us. We've been given a brand new life to live. We no longer have that old life that used to be bound to those things that used to pull us down, the, the sins that used to pull us down, and the way we used to live. That old life was bound to that. But we're a new man. You know, it's like when you, you come against, you come as a Christian, you come to some old friends that knew you, and they're like, I know you. Now you know who I used to be. You know the old me. You know, you can't live like this. I, I mean, I know what you used to do in high school. I, I know what you used to do in, in college. No, you knew, you knew somebody else. I have a, I'm a new man. There's a new life living inside me. See, the thing is, is Christ's payment was not only a legal one. The, the legal payment was his death and our death with him. Because what are the wages of sin? Death. In order for us to be justified, the legal payment, justification, was the death of Jesus Christ. But it didn't stop there because we've also been sanctified in him with life. Not only did he die for our sin and we died with him, not only were we forgiven, our sin was forgiven from us as he paid the penalty, but we were freed from the power of sin as well. We were not only justified, which is to be made right with God, but we were sanctified, which means we have the ability now to live righteously. And he didn't just rescue us from death. But he did give us a new life. You know, it's, it's the difference between Jesus. If Jesus would have just died and never raised from the dead, it's true our sins would have been forgiven, but we would never have freedom. Because it's his new life when he's raised from the dead. You know, that's the, the amazing thing. We often look at the, the, the death of Jesus and we look at how he paid our sin and that's what we celebrate and, and lack for lack of a better term. But it's, it's, not, it's not the cross. It's not his death. It's the amazing thing. But it's his resurrection, the power, his new life that we have joined with him in us that allows us to be righteous, allows us to live holy lives, that allows us to be free from sin. Because there's a difference between having something paid but then being freed from it completely. Going back to the alcoholic, if he, has a, if he has a debt at a local bar because he's an alcoholic and he keeps putting stuff on his tab, if you pay his debt, that's good, right? And now he's free from that debt of the payment that he owes, but he's still an alcoholic. He's still going to go in there and keep drinking. 
But if you not only pay his, his debt, but you also free him from alcoholism, he'll never go back in there and rack the debt up again. He'll never, there's a difference between just having your debt paid, but also being free and having a new life inside of you. And the truth is that many people are afraid to leave the life that they have. Many people who aren't saved, they're afraid to live the life they know behind. They're afraid of leaving friends. They're afraid of leaving the familiarity of who they are. You know, I've heard people say that I don't want to change who I am. No, you really do. Do you know who you are? <laughs> you know? Let me, let me read you a story about Frederick Douglass. He was a, a slave in Maryland. It says, Frederick Douglass grew up as a slave in Maryland in the early 19th century and experienced slavery's every brutality. He was taken from his mother when he was only an infant. For years as a child, all he had to eat was runny cornmeal dumped in a trough that the kids fought to scoop out with oyster shells. He worked in the hot fields from sunup until sundown. He was whipped many times with a cowhide whip until blood ran down his back. He was kicked and beaten by his master until he almost died. And he, he was attacked with a spike by a gang of whites. But even so, when Frederick considered trying to escape to freedom, he struggled with the decision. He writes in a narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, that he had two great fears. First was leaving behind his friends. He said, I had a number of warm-hearted friends in Baltimore, friends that I loved almost as I did my life. And the thought of being separated from them from forever was painful beyond expression. It is my opinion that thousands would escape from slavery who now remain but for the strong cords of affection that bind them to their friends. And his second fear was this, that if I failed in this attempt, my case would be a helpless one, a hopeless one. It would seal my fate as a slave forever. You know, many people, like Frederick Douglass as a slave, have these same fears of coming to know the Lord because the truth is, and I think most of us have experienced this, we've had to leave friends behind that didn't want to come with us because you just don't relate to them anymore. And it's painful. And it's, you know, I've, I've had good friends that, that were so dear to me that, that uh, I remember I had a friend that the first time he moved to a different city, I cried because I was going to miss him so much. And since then, I came to know the Lord. And now, I mean, we're still acquaintances, if you will. We're still, I mean, we would still call each other friends, but I don't hang out with him. I don't see, with, see him. I rarely, if ever, talk to him. You know, it's a friend that, that ultimately I had to give up for Jesus Christ. And then there are people who, who uh, you know, they're familiar with their life. They know how things are going. They, they're, they're just like him who's going through all these hard times. There were still things that they clung to to be free. Now, if you, if you continue to read in his story, he said when he was free, when he finally made it to New York, he was overwhelmed by the sense of freedom. It was so much more worth it than what he left behind that freedom of his slavery. And the same for us. I think we can all say it was, it was definitely worth it what we had to leave behind for what we have now, the new life that we have inside of us. You know, this, the reason I brought that story up is because Paul likens this to slavery. He says that we're slaves to sin before we get saved. It is our master. It is what controls us. Just like Frederick Douglass was a slave to his master and he was afraid to leave it Many Christians, many non-believers are like that, afraid to leave it. But the truth is, if they will just give their life over to God, that they will have a freedom that they've never experienced. They ever have, never experienced in their entire life. And it is definitely all worth it. I think that all of us can testify that it is definitely all worth it. Amen. 
In Romans 6, 8-11 it says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, the, the death that Jesus died was a once-off thing. Once and for all, penalty was paid. Death is no longer a master over him. To make it clear, it's not going to happen again. We've died with Christ. We're not going to have to die again. We've been given his new life. And his new life is to never die again because death is no longer a master over him. And if death is no longer a master over him and we have his life inside of us, the same is true for us. Now, it's true that one day our bodies are going to expire. The, uh, the meat tent that you live on is just, just temporary. But you will live on forever with Jesus Christ. You will have eternal life. And the truth is, eternity is there for those who live and those who die. The question is, do you have eternal death or do you have eternal life? It says that Jesus lives to God. And he lives to God. The life that Jesus lives, he lives to God. And his life is what's inside of us. So the life that we should live, united with his, should model his. Our life should be lived to God. And just like that, we are dead to sin and alive to God, just like Jesus. When Adam sinned, he died a spiritual death, and he was dead to God. And the, the story of the gospel is so amazing because when Adam sinned, he was dead to God just like we are. That's been passed on through generation after generation. We're born broken. We were born dead to God. But then Jesus came. And that man that we were died with him. We died to sin. Because did you see, the, you see what happened there is that when he died to God, Adam became alive to sin. Whereas before he wasn't alive to sin, he was only alive to God. Then he, he makes a poor decision, and now he's dead to God and alive to sin. And that's the state that we find ourselves in without Jesus. But Jesus comes to reverse that situation, because by faith we have once again died to sin, but are now alive to God. You know, without Jesus it's impossible to serve and live to God. You know, the people, if they're not saved, they can't truly serve God. They can't live to God because... Unfortunately, they're living to sin at that point in time. Without that fundamental change, without the, the heart of stone removed and the heart of flesh replaced, you can't live to God. But I thank God that we've been given a new life inside of us, one that already lives to God, that we, we are united and identified with, that we can live to God as well. When we're saved, we are immediately justified. We are immediately forgiven. We are immediately made righteous. And finally, at that time, we're able to live lives that actually demonstrate that fact. Romans 6, 12-14, it says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace." I mean, that we're called to holiness. We're called to live a righteous life. You know, Paul asked, should we continue to sin? May it never be. Now, I thank God if we stumble, 
we are forgiven. If we stumble, as long as we get back up, the Bible says the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up seven times. If you always get back up, you are forgiven. But we definitely don't do it intentionally. Sin in a believer's life should be a rare occurrence. It's not an everyday thing. Because we've been called to holiness. To live our lives from the life that we've been given. We live out of the life that Jesus Christ has given us. You know, it's, we do what we must in order to not let sin reign in our body. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. I thank God that we've been given a, life, a new life and that we are able to even do this. We're able to live without sin because God has given us a new life that, that has living without sin. Jesus lived on this earth without sinning as a man. So that means that we can do the same with his life inside of us. You know, armed with the knowledge of this truth, armed with a revelation of what God has done inside of you, it's possible to resist sin and temptation. And if you're struggling in an area, flee. Don't, don't uh, give that sin an opportunity in your life. In Matthew 5.29, Jesus said, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Now flee from the youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, and those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You know, if you find yourself in a situation where standing that temptation and straight in the eye is not a good idea, run, get out of there. You know, if there are some things that you can stand against and resist. And there are others that it's not, it's not worth taking the chance. Run. Flee. There's nothing wrong with that. Get yourself away from a position where you're presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness. You know this word instrument here, this, as instruments of unrighteousness, can also be translated as weapons. And that kind of brings it into a little bit better context because... You can use your body as a weapon for sin. You know, fighting a battle for sin. Or you can use your body as a weapon for righteousness, as, as an instrument or weapon for God. And those are the choices that we make. Now the truth is, without Jesus, it's not even a choice. You can, you can do all that you want. You can try. I know before I fully let God come into my life, I was trying to be good. I knew this is what I wanted to be. But I couldn't. I failed. And we'll see later as Paul talks about the same thing as, as before when he was under the law. He wanted to do good, but he kept doing the very thing that he hated. The truth is that without Jesus, we can't live a righteous life. We can't live a holy life. But with Jesus, we can. You know, throughout the Bible, we see how men's bodies were used for God or for sin. Even sometimes both in the same man's lives. Moses was used to free the people of Israel. But he also was a murderer. David was a man after God's own heart. But then we find he also commits adultery. The truth is that, that we have to, to take, a, take a stand and realize that sin is not our master. Its stronghold over us has been broken. And under the law, sin had mastery because we were broken. It could control us. It had... but. We are no longer under the law. We are under grace. And we have been given a new life that is not subject to the powers of sin. And the old life that was subject to those powers is dead and gone. 
reckon yourself dead to sin. Reckon, you know, realize that uh, and soak it in whatever you've got to do to, to grab hold of that fundamental truth. And that's how you can stand against the enemy when he attacks you with temptations and sin and is recognize that you are dead to that old stuff and you are a brand new creature in Christ, right? Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a brand new creature. It's a new creation and the old things have passed. Behold, new things have come. Colossians 3, 2 through 3, it says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, this is the, one of those things is, is uh, how do we accomplish the things that are easy to say but are sometimes hard to, uh, to actually do? You know, it's one of those, yeah, you say just don't sin, resist temptation. That's easy for you to say, Pastor Wayne. Well, it's not any more easy for me than it is for you guys. I'm not, uh, you know, God didn't give me an extra helping of holiness. You're just as holy as I am. He didn't give me an extra helping of willpower. There's still areas in my life that I have to struggle. Sometimes I have to flee because it's not worth trying to, to resist. So what do we do, though, when those times come? We set our mind on the things above. If you'll set your mind on the things above, you'll find that it is impossible to sin. Impossible to sin if you'll set your mind on the things above. In Jude one twenty four it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. My favorite verse in the Bible says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. But then you're like, wait a minute, but I still stumble sometimes. If he's able to keep me from stumbling, why do I still stumble sometimes? But the thing is, is... is we stop setting our mind on things above. You know, if you ever feel that, that temptation coming in, just begin to praise God. Begin to sing and worship God. Begin to pray. To Jesus. Begin to, to make Jesus in the forefront of your mind. How many knows you're not going to do something stupid when you're thinking about Jesus? It's impossible to when your eyes are on Jesus. But what happens is, is we're like, I know Jesus, but hang on a second. And we push him off to the side. That's really what happens. Or sometimes we're so far gone, he doesn't even come into our mind. We don't even bother. We just, our conscience has been so dulled that, but the truth is that if you'll, you'll keep him in the forefront of your mind, then you're all right. The next thing we need to understand too is that temptation is not sin. Just because you're tempted, that doesn't mean that you're sinning, you're a terrible person, or you're, you're messing up. You want to know how I know that? Remember, Jesus was tempted for 40 days, and he didn't sin. Temptation is not sin. Have you ever heard the expression that you, can, uh, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can keep it from building a nest? You know, the Bible says that we take every thought captive. The truth is that uh, temptation is not sin, but, but when you find yourself in that area, don't let it lead to sin, because it will lead to sin unless you replace it with something else. And Jesus Christ will keep you from sinning. Because the result of keeping our minds on the things of this earth are a dulled conscience. I already mentioned that. The only time that we don't see Jesus is when we've dulled our conscience so much. So a man consulted a doctor. He said, I've been misbehaving, doc, and my conscience is troubling me. And the doctor said, well, you want me to do something that will strengthen your willpower? And he said, well, no. I was just thinking of something that would weaken my conscience. <laughs> Truthfully, that, that's what can happen to us if we continue to keep our minds set on things of this earth. 
is our consciousness is dulled, and all of a sudden stuff that would bother us stops bothering us no more, and the next thing you know, we're so far from Jesus, we become one of the backslidden. But the truth is, if we keep our focus on Him, He is able to keep us from stumbling, because we have died, and our life is hidden inside of Him. Amen? In Romans 6, 15 through 16, it says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? You know, the first time he asked the question, all right, so should we sin so we can make God's grace more powerful? And he, and he shoots that argument down. No, we're dead to sin. How can we live in it? And then he says, all right, well then, shall we sin because we're not under the law anymore, but we're under grace? Basically, he's like, so does that mean we're allowed to sin? Because we're forgiven, right? I was reading a story about a, uh, 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 a professor at, at a divinity school. It says, D.A. Carson, a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, used to meet with a young man from French West Africa for the purpose of practicing their German. He writes, once a week or so, we had enough, so we went out for a meal together and retreated to French, a language we both knew well. In the course of those meals, we got to know each other. I learned that his wife was in London training to be a medical doctor. He was an engineer who needed fluency in German in order to pursue doctoral studies in engineering in Germany. I soon discovered that once or twice a week, he disappeared into the red light district of town. Obviously, he went to pay his money and have his women. Eventually, I got to know him well enough that I asked him what he would do if he discovered that his wife was doing something similar in London. Oh, he said, I'd kill her. When I first read this, I thought this was a, euf a euphemism where he was just, you know, saying it. No, it turns out he would actually kill her. That's a bit of a double standard, isn't it, I asked. He says, you don't understand where I come from in Africa. The husband has the right to sleep with many women, but if a wife is unfaithful to her husband, she must be killed. So the, the professor says, but you told me you were raised in a mission school. You know that God of the Bible does not have double standards like that. And he says, he gave me a bright smile and replied, something in French that I can't read, I'll just give you the translation. It says, ah, God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. Now that's a terrible attitude to have. Paul right here says, may it never be. Because that's what God is doing. Because we're under grace. That does not, it's, it's, Free from sin, not free to sin. We see the difference? We're, we're free from it, not free to do whatever we want. He says, do not know that when you present yourself to someone as a slave for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. Whatever we choose to obey, to obey is what has power over us in our lives. It's what becomes our master. If you obey sin, temptation, and lust, then it becomes your master. And if you present yourself to God, you're a slave to righteousness by obedience to God. Whatever we submit ourselves to is what's going to have its way in our lives. And let's be very clear, you can only serve one master. Do you remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verses 13, he said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And he says you cannot serve God in wealth. Obviously, Jesus was talking about money in this instance, if you put money ahead of him. But the principle is the same, no matter what it is in our life. If you put sin ahead of God, you can't serve them both. You'll either love one and hate the other. That's the choices. And we see it so often in people's lives as they get involved in sin, they begin to hate God. 
and vice versa. As those of us who have, who have given our lives to God, we hate sin because it is an affront to God. Amen? 1 Corinthians 6, 15-20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, The two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify, therefore glorify God in your body. I was doing so good today. Glorify God in your body. See, the problem is that Paul's addressing is that in the, the Corinthians they would go to the temples there and, and sleep with prostitutes. That was kind of part of their religion. That's how they worshipped. They went to, the, to the, the temple and slept with prostitutes. It was common practice. So as the Corinthians were getting saved and being pulled from that, that heathen religion, the pagan religion they were coming from, Paul's saying, that, hey, listen, that's not okay. That's not, do you not understand that you are one with Christ and whatever you do, you're joining Christ to? Because it's, it's easy for us to say, Oh, I might sin, but oh, I would never. I mean, the the idea of joining Christ to a prostitute is absurd in our mind, right? That's. I mean, none of us would ever. That's absurd. However, if you're to do something like that, Christ is one with you. You've become one in spirit, just like it says. Um. Where is it at? There it is. One who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. When you, if you're to join yourself to sin, you're joining Christ to sin. Now, it's absurd when we, we think of doing Christ to it, and it's not so absurd when we think about joining ourselves to it, but the truth is, when you join yourself to it, you're joining Christ to it as well. And we also find that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in us. Do you remember that the, uh, when Jesus died, the veil was torn? And basically, when the veil was torn, it rendled the, rendled, rendered, See what happened? Now I got started on it. It rendered the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem basically worthless, useless. It had no purpose anymore because we were now, each and every one of us were the temple of the Holy Spirit and we could commune with God one-on-one. We didn't have to go through a priest. We didn't have to go to a temple to worship. But God is with us and inside of us. You know, this is the, the, the one thing that, that has always proven to me that we are made holy we are made 100% pure and perfect. We are sanctified and justified when we get saved. Is because if we weren't, how could God come live inside of us? How could the Holy Spirit come to live inside of us? Because in Him there is no darkness. And He actually can't, commun- he can't commingle with darkness. He can't live with darkness. The very fact that He came to live inside of us is proof that we've been made pure and holy before Him. Amen? And then finally it says that you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. The truth is that our bodies are not our own anymore. We are not our own. but We belong to God because He paid for us. He paid an incredibly high price for us. And since our body is His, we should use it as He asks. 
We go on to Romans 6, 17 through 19. It says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart of that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. The truth is that we should put as much effort and heart into being a slave to righteousness as we did in being slaves to sin. Our our ultimate goal should always to be as good of a Christian as we were as a sinner. And Lord knows, some of us were pretty good sinners. All of us, I think. We should strive to be as good of a Christian as we ever were as a sinner. You know, it's funny that oftentimes you'll find that the worst people make the best evangelists because, man, they decide to sell out for something. They either sold out for sin or they're sold out for Jesus. And I want to be sold out for Jesus. I want to be a better Christian than I ever was a sinner. He says right here that just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. Do the same thing, but obviously with a different master. When we were presenting ourselves to lawlessness, lawlessness, it resulted only in further lawlessness. You know, when we were living in sin, we were always searching for something. We were searching for fulfillment in something. And whether that was women or drugs or alcohol or partying or whatever those things were, you're searching for something. You're trying to fill something. And it always resulted in further lawlessness. And why? Because it never met the need that you were trying to have met. It never met. It never... It never filled that void so you continue searching and you continue doing stupid as you look for more and it results in further lawlessness however the bible says that we can present ourselves as slaves to righteousness and that results in further sanctification you know there's the bible refers to kind of two different ideas in regard to sanctification the first is our justification or our sanctification when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I want you to know that when you get saved, you are fully and 100% sanctified and justified before God. But the Bible also talks about, like right here, resulting in sanctification as we present our members as slaves to righteousness. There's also this idea of, of living out the sanctification that we already have inside of us. Did I mess up again? You're giggling. <laughs> <laughs> Praise God. So, uh, I see what you did now. I'm on lost track. All right, the second process is, is this process of sanctification, this living it out, is actually living out the sanctified life that we've already been given inside of us. It's kind of our body catching up to what already is true. It's, it's our body reflecting our lives, living our lives in a way that reflects the spiritual truth that we are justified and sanctified before God. And that's what we see here. That if we present ourselves as slaves to righteousness, as we begin to be obedient to God and, and live towards Him, then we'll see that sanctification inside of us begin to live out in our lives. Amen? Romans 6, 20-21, it says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free 
and regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. You know, many people who are living a life without Jesus will argue that they are free. And the truth is, they were free. But not free in the way that they thought. Like here he says, you are free in regard to righteousness. But they were slaves to sin. The people that claim they're free, they don't want to become Christians because we want to be able to keep doing whatever we're doing. We want to be able to do what we want. We don't want to be bogged down by all these rules. We don't want to, we don't want to stop doing these things because right now I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. But they think they'll be restricted if they accept Jesus. And like I said, it's true. They're free, but only free from righteousness because they're still slaves to sins. I always ask people who claim these things to stop doing what they're doing. Oh, you're free to do what you want? Stop smoking. Stop drinking. Stop sleeping around. If they were to bother trying, they'd realize that they're not really free. I know I used to smoke. One of the hardest things I ever did in my life was quit smoking. I wasn't free. I thought I was free to do what I want, but I wasn't free. I was definitely a slave to cigarettes. And then he says... What benefit were you deriving from those things which you are now ashamed? What were you getting from it? Was it filling any void? Was it actually making an impact in your life? Did it ever actually satisfy? Or did you always continue searching for something else as, as what you had was, was a passing pleasure? And it did just that. It passed. It temporarily filled the void and was quickly emptied right after because it could never fully satisfy, never completely satisfy like Jesus can. And then what's the outcome of that? Ultimately, the outcome is just a past that you're ashamed of. Even people before they get saved can look back at their life and see things that they've done that they were ashamed of in the name of freedom. But I thank God that if we live a life obedient to righteousness, we don't have a life that we can be ashamed of. We have a life that we can be proud of, that we are serving God in our life. But then finally, the ultimate result of this life, after you're ashamed of what you've done, the final outcome is always death. Because the wages of sin is death. Then Romans 6, 22-23, he goes on talking about the free gift, which is eternal life. He says, but now you've been freed from sin and enslaved to God. You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See here we see that the outcome of being a slave to God is righteousness. The outcome of obedience to God is righteousness. It's a life that we're not ashamed of and ultimately in the end of this one we don't have death, but we have eternal life is what we inherit from God. The wages of sin, or the payment for your obedience to sin, is death. That's all. All you ever receive from sin is heartbreak and hurt and pain, suffering, and then ultimately death. Then it says, then the free gift of God. And you'll notice he doesn't call it the wages of God, because it's a gift. Wages is something that you earn, but a gift is something that is given to you without anything expected in return. It's eternal life. We are given a new life, and Jesus finally satisfies what we were longing for that whole time. 
You know, it's funny, before I got saved, whenever the holidays would come around, our birthdays, there was always stuff that I had to have. I mean, I had to have this stuff, because obviously the next video game was going to make me happy. Or a new car was going to make me happy. Or the next new thing was going to make me happy. I had to have them. And I finally realized it with Jesus that there's nothing that I have to have. My happiness isn't tied to things. My happiness isn't tied to stuff. But I'm satisfied in Him. That doesn't mean there's not stuff that I I want. I mean, I still want stuff. But there's never a point where I'm like, this is what's going to make me happy. This is what's going to satisfy me because my satisfaction comes from the Lord. (laughs) Maybe a burnt retina will... uh... (laughs) Praise God. The last scripture we're going to look at today is Philippians 3, 15 through 16. (laughs) Let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. And if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that as to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Alright, this is the third time now that I've used this scripture. Let's see if we remember the answer. Raise your hand if you're perfect. That's everybody. In Christ, you are perfect. Third time's a charm. (laughs) Healed in Jesus' name. (laughs) Praise God. The truth is that in Jesus, we are all, all made perfect. We have his life inside of us that is perfect. That's the sanctification that happens when you are saved. You see right here it says, let us keep living by the same standard to which we are working towards. It doesn't say working towards. It says that we have attained. The standard that we have attained, the standard of who we are, is is the sanctification that we get when we're saved. We're made brand new and perfect. So let us live out who we are. Let us live the life that we have inside of us. Have this attitude. Let us keep living to the same standard that is, that is within us. And it says, if you have a, a different attitude, ask God and He'll reveal that to you. He'll reveal where you're, where you're, where you're not looking right at, at your life. You're not reckoning right what God has done inside of you. The truth is that in Christ, we've all been made perfect before God. So let's live that way. Let's live who we are in God. And the truth is that Now that we have them inside of us, it's finally possible to live a righteous life, to live an obedient life, to live to God and not to sin. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's go and stand to our feet and pray.